It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and take your Bible with me this morning and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be considering chapter 2, verses 12 through the end of the chapter this morning. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26 will be the text that we read this morning. There are kids in here. Uh, there are coloring supplies in the back. We only have uh, BCC kids for infants and toddlers this morning, but there are coloring supplies back there if anyone needs to make a mad dash for, for an activity. Studies also show that kids retain more when they're doing activities, so take that for what it is. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. Let me read this for us this morning. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then, I ha why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have lo been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after the wind. Last week we saw the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes begin exploring things and to discover if they are in fact vanity. To discover or to verify the claim that he makes if you go back to chapter 1 verse 2 where he says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
So he begins testing things. He dives, last week we saw he dove into wisdom and experience and pleasure, self-indulgence. And he doesn't deny himself anything, he says. But he gives his heart to all of these things. He tests them. And he draws the conclusion that they are in fact vanity or striving after the wind. Even wisdom and pleasure and experience used correctly still can't stop death. This is what the preacher says. And so this morning we move on to a couple more things. A couple things that are actually near and dear to our hearts in our culture. Thomas Edison once famously said, three great essentials to achieve anything worthwhile are first, hard work, second, stick-to-itiveness, and third, common sense. And these, these are primary tenets of many of our lives. Work hard and be nice to people. It's the mantra of the upper Midwest. Work hard and be nice to people. Maybe you even have a piece of art that says that in your home. We are always being told that failure is not an option and that if you fall down, you need to get back up again. Work hard. Apply yourself. We value common sense. When we hear an act of stupidity, we say, that's just common sense. Or that's just sensible. And so does it surprise us that when we get to the second half of chapter 2, that that the preacher confronts what Thomas Edison says? Does Does it surprise us that Thomas Edison's formula for achieving something worthwhile is under the microscope? It shouldn't, based on what we've seen so far in this book. If wisdom, experience, pleasure, and self-indulgence are all vanity, why would sensibility or common sense and hard work also be under the microscope? So we see this morning that the preacher confronts two more of these ideas, right? So we're going to see what he calls the vanity of sensibility in verses 12 through 17, and then 18 through 23, the vanity of hard work. And then, verses 24 through 26, the preacher gives us the proper response in light of the vanity of all the things that exist under the sun. If all is vanity, like he says in chapter 1, verse 2, what is our response to that reality? And that's what he gives us at the end of chapter 2. So let's break off each of these ideas and talk about each one of these. First, the vanity of sensibility. So our focus is going to be on verses 12 through 17. The vanity of sensibility. This idea of common sense. No no doubt you've heard of postmodernism. Postmodernism is a particular lens for looking at the world, especially in areas of art, literature, architecture, philosophy, etc., It came into prominence in the second half of the 20th century after modernism, obviously post-modernism, after modernism, in the first half of the 20th century. Post-modernism essentially rejected the idea of history moving in a particular direction.
This means a substantial rise in what we would refer to as relativism or objective reality. The rejection of objective reality says something that you've probably heard before. Someone say to you, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. This became especially true in the area of morality. Postmodernity says that moral standards are socially conditioned. They're a result of the culture around us. And therefore, they should be discarded or set aside. So, the effects of this on our culture, the effects of relativism continue to be prevalent even in our world, even after this idea has begun to lose some traction in our world. Again, we continue to hear with frequency, that may be true for you, but it's just not true for me. We are quick to reject objective standards, which has made an appeal to the Bible as an authority as extremely difficult in the Christian mindset or worldview. But Solomon, we see in verses 12 through 17, Solomon is not a relativist. Now, as we've been studying this book, you might get the sense that we're going in a direction that says, well, if all is vanity, then what does it matter what I do with my life? If all is meaningless under the sun, what type of standard should I live to and why is it important to? But if we see what Solomon writes here, we see what the preacher says, He says in verse 13 very clearly, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. This would not lead us into relativism. We would not say that matters for you, but it does not matter for me. Wisdom, Solomon says, should matter for everyone. Living life wisely is important. He says wisdom is better than folly. Again, that made me seem surprising to us in light of the fact that all is vanity. Now, the second half of that verse, it it probably makes sense. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. If you have to install a hot water heater in the basement, it's a lot more difficult to do it with the lights off than the light on. You you get everything together and you head downstairs. You leave the lights off. You're going to endure some significant injury and probably break something in in the process. It's going to probably take you a lot longer to complete the job. There is more benefit in light than in darkness. This is sensible. This is living based on wisdom. Or if you're at work and your coworker brings you a problem, one of their clients is thinking about choosing the competition. They say, I think they don't like me, your coworker says. That could be, you reply, what kind of prices is the competition offering? Well, a lot lower than ours. When all the information comes to light, you are able to assess that this is most likely a pricing concern and not a personal vendetta. There is more benefit in living in the light than living in darkness. There is more to gain, Solomon says. 
Then we get into verse 14. And Solomon says, The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So the preacher prevents us from thinking, well, if the fool and wise man both die, I'll just act like a fool, do what I want to do, and it doesn't matter. The preacher says, no, that's not the case. It's still better to live wisely here on earth than under the sun. Just like it's better to handle our laughter, like we saw last week, or our money, or our relationships, or nature, or all of these things. To handle these well. Douglas Wilson says it like this. We can see that even in this experience of sin, Solomon has not become a relativist. Despite the meaninglessness, Solomon sees that wisdom is still better than folly. Better to go over a cliff with eyes open than with eyes shut. But the reality then is that the second half of verse 14 stares us down. And the preacher writes, and yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them, both the one who walks in light and in darkness, the one, the fool and the wise. What is this event? The event is death. So Solomon affirms that it is in fact better to live wisely or sensibly according to common sense, but even living sensibly cannot keep death from coming for us. You may live according to wisdom, and you should seek to. The preacher confirms this. We should absolutely seek to live according to wisdom. But your end will still inevitably come. Death cannot be prevented by living wisely. It is wise to eat well. It is wise to exercise. Both your body and your mind. It is wise to manage your resources well. It's wise to work hard. It's wise to rest. Many things are wise but living according to wisdom, living sensibly, cannot prevent death from coming. So we continue. So we see the vanity of sensibility or common sense. And then we see the vanity or sensibility of hard work. Or the vanity of sensibility and the vanity then of hard work. And this is the first thing in Thomas Edison's formula for achieving something worthwhile. First, he says, hard work. Work hard. Solomon certainly achieved something worthwhile. The, the first part of chapter 2 gives us this. He could give himself to all of the pleasures that are listed in chapter 2 because he achieved something worthwhile, at least in an earthly sense. He gave himself opportunity upon opportunity because of his wisdom, because of his affluence. He took a kingdom and grew it into prominence and affluence in the same trajectory that his father David had it going. And he says that he worked hard for it. He did. He applied himself. But again, even his hard work, he sees it all as vanity. Why? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 21. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Death comes. And it has, and what we've accumulated here on earth goes to someone else. Someone else gets what you worked for. 
Maybe you build a legacy for your children. Wonderful. But maybe your children are ungrateful. Or maybe it just all goes to the state. Death comes and you can't take anything with you. Often even just the aging process takes it from us. Before death, Zach Eswine writes, When we were young, we dreamt of a house to buy, a, house to buy, a yard to create with, pieces of furniture to possess, and a bank account from which to use for our gain. When we are old, a time comes to sell everything that once represented our dreams of a future. We have to move to an assisted living facility or live with our kids or while someone else uses the drapes we left in the windows we used to wash and enjoy. Our, our hard work fills up the bank account and makes our dreams a reality, but everything slowly slips out of our grasp to be enjoyed by someone else later. And the preacher says in verse 23, he says, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in, this, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This calls us back to verse 18, when the preacher is talking about wisdom. He says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Hard work and wisdom, living sensibly, pleasure, these things cannot satisfy the human heart. Days are full of sorrow. Work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. And I find that phrase to be incredibly compelling. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Many of us go to bed thinking about our work and we wake up thinking about our work. Our sleep is restless because we know what's waiting for us in the morning. We find our identity, our worth, and our productivity. But the preacher says that the fruit of your labor will outlast you and that it will be enjoyed by someone else who didn't work for it. But just like wisdom or sensible living, here with hard work, it is better to work hard than be lazy. The Bible is clear about it. If you're living like a fool, you need to seek wisdom. If you're not working, you need to start working. But hard work can't stop death. And just like every other area the preacher addresses, many of us work at a pace that is unsustainable. We are connected in the world through our cell phones. We are constantly checking email or text messages. Employers send us messages at all hours of the day or night. And maybe we simply impose impossible standards on ourselves and our work. The preacher provides us with valuable perspective here. Our work is subjected to the thorns and thistles that come as a result of the curse in Genesis 3. When God speaks the curse in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, he says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our work is hard because of the curse of sin. But when we give ourselves to work with no limits, which many of us do, when we give ourselves to work with no limits, we are saying, 
I can bring about a result, I can bring about a yield that looks like Eden before the curse. When God put Adam in the Garden of Eden and told him to watch over it and care for it, there were no thorns and thistles. Those did not exist. When Adam set out to accomplish a task, that task would go perfectly, with no resistance. Things grew perfectly and yielded perfectly. Now, when sin entered the world, because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, those perfect yields were ended. You know when you go out to accomplish a task at work, you don't always get the result that you hoped for. You send an email with a typo in it, or the formula is wrong in the spreadsheet. But the problem that many of us face is that we think that we can recover those perfect yields if we just work a little bit harder. The preacher says you can't. Eden-like perfection for your labor is impossible. I'm convinced this is why we're so overworked in our culture. Because we genuinely believe that through hard work we can achieve peace and rest. We think we can bring about Eden once again, but this is an impossibility. What is crooked cannot be made straight, the preacher says. What cannot yield perfectly by, by, from us cannot be forced to yield perfectly. We cannot bring about heaven here on earth. Heaven needs to come down to us. So we ask the question, what is our response to all of this? What is our response? If all is vanity, like the preacher says in 1-2, and then he applies himself to test all of these things that we probably will never even have an opportunity to test in our lives. If we test all of these things like the preacher does, and we discover that they are in fact all vanity, if wisdom and experience cannot straighten out the crooked, if pleasure and self-indulgence cannot satisfy the human heart, if, if, if having common sense and applying wisdom cannot prevent death, if hard work cannot restore Eden, then what? What should our response be? The preacher gives it to us. This might come as a surprise. But he says our response, we should respond by seeing our eating and our drinking and our work as gifts. We should, we should not see our eating and our drinking and our work as the giver. We should see those things as gifts from God to be enjoyed and not the thing that can give us satisfaction. The preacher says, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment, all of the things that the preacher tests to see if they are vanity can still be enjoyed in light of the truth that they cannot make the crooked straight or prevent death from coming. Why? Because by recognizing that which is vain, we are led to discover that which isn't. You cannot find meaning in this life apart from God, plain and simple. All is vanity apart from him, and there is cause for despair. But with him, we can enjoy our food and our drink and our work because the gift is always intended to point us to the giver. God's people enjoy the gifts of God, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But the preacher says that the sinner takes 
and rakes together as much stuff as he can. In verse 26, to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting. They rake together money and cars and boats and vacations and status and job titles and food and drink, but find no joy in it. Because the only way to find enjoyment is it, in it is to see that it all comes from God as a signpost pointing to his generosity. When teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus said in Matthew 6.11, Give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say, give us this day our daily bread and the bread for tomorrow and the bread for the next day. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Do I have what I need for today? Am I content with that? Do I see it as a gift to be enjoyed that points me to the giver? Or am I frustrated that it's not enough for tomorrow also? Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So the key to enjoying life, the preacher says, is to see that gifts come from the giver. A life of discontent comes from always looking beyond what you have. Scraping together more things faster for oneself, like the sinner. But you must slow down, the preacher says. Chew your food. Praise God for the flavor. Consider your work, the labor of your hands. Thank God that you have the ability to do it. Take a walk and enjoy the sunset. Enjoy your children or grandchildren in the stage they are today, not the stage that you hope they'll be in soon. Recognize that God isn't wasting even the difficulty in your life. When hard things happen, you can be certain that God is producing something in you and be grateful. The one who is demanding more faster misses the beauty of the gift and fails to connect it all to the giver. Apart from God, lasting joy is not possible. And you can find joy and be content in daily gifts when you know that they come from the source of joy everlasting. And so, take away from this our response. We must learn to enjoy things properly. Again, Zach Eswine says, We must learn from God how to enjoy what he has given to us, knowing that none of it can save or satisfy us. Trying to turn a grapefruit into a baseball doesn't dismiss the value of the grapefruit, but it makes for a disappointing baseball game. If we want to enjoy the fruit's value, we have to treat it according to the use God gave it and resist trying to use it for things it was not made for. 
A grapefruit cannot give us the thrill of a home run, but it can make a breakfast pleasant. So it is with our spouses, our food, our work, and our place in this world. Neither of these things can satisfy our souls or provide the gain that only God can give. Trying to use them as such will only disappoint us. Yet these creations are God-given and possess divine purpose. A joy resides within them for our notice, and this is by design. We are meant to taste these joys for which God's gifts are made. And so, ask yourself, was this thing made to enjoy for the moment or for eternity? Seeking eternal joy in things only given to provide momentary joy will lead to sorrow and vexation. But seeking eternal joy in things that are eternal will give us the ability to find joy in the moment as well. So, See your eating and your drinking and your work as gifts and not as the giver. When you see food and drink and work as a source of enjoyment, you will remain discontented and unhappy. But gifts that flow from the source of enjoyment, you will find contentment and happiness. Food and drink and work are not the source of enjoyment. These are gifts given to us by the giver to point us to him. The reality of all of this, though, is that for any of it to happen, we first must be made new. Again, this idea of, is there anything new under the sun? And Jesus brings about newness for us. The preacher did not see the day, but the day was coming. Newness for us can only come in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As a new creation, you have the ability to move from the vain pursuit of the here and now under the sun and to enjoy the things given to you in the way that they were intended to be enjoyed as a gift that points to the giver. In order to be in Christ, you must trust him as the only way to be made right with God. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins, and in him you could be made new. The last thing that I'll say this morning is think of it like this. When you sit down to write a thank you note to someone, you don't write a thank you note to the gift. You write a thank you note to the giver. And so write some thank you notes today. Not literally, but write some thank you notes. Think to yourself, when you're eating and when you're drinking and when you're working, thank you for the, thank the giver for them, for those things. Thank God that apart from him, you cannot enjoy those things. And thank God for Jesus Christ. That the storehouse of heaven was emptied for you and for me. And that everything that we enjoy in the moment is a glimpse of something that we will enjoy for eternity. Let's pray.